TorahCafe.com. We're just coming from the holiday of Purim. No, coming from. I go, I'm not going Pesach here. So it says in the Megillah, in the ninth chapter, Kimu v'kiblu Yehudim. The Jewish people fulfilled and accepted. That which already began. And the Gemara in Shabbos says what? Says, what did the Jewish people accept? They accepted the Torah in a new way. Okay? This is what it says. That on Purim, they accepted the Torah in a more profound way than they even did on Sinai. What happened? Let's go back to Har Sinai. Har Sinai, the Jewish people stood at the foot of the mountain. All in unison. And it said, Hashem held the mountain over them like a barrel. And said, accept the Torah. And if not, drop. So there's an idea that Jewish people were, were coerced to accept the Torah on Har Sinai. What's going on with this? That sounds like, sounds weird. So we're going to explain that, that the way the Jewish people were coerced, they were coerced by the incredible experience of Harsinai that made them need to accept the Torah, okay? There's a couple of angles of how to explain this. One is talking about how much Hashem loves us, but I want to go a different angle about Hashem's unity, okay? The Jewish people experienced in Harsinai God's unity. What's, it, what's that mean, God's unity? Uh, Nathan Gilman's not allowed to answer this because he comes to Tanya on Shabbos morning. But what, what is... Yes, you do. You're not here as much, though. Um, what's, what's God's unity mean? What's it mean? God, this idea all over Judaism, God's unity, the unity of God. What's that mean? Someone tell me. God exists in everything. God exists in everything. Okay, you're already one step ahead of the average person. The average person would say God's unity means there's only one God. Right? Like in Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The, the, the simple person says it means there's only one God. Don't worship multiple gods. Only one God. But the deeper idea is that God's in everything, yes? Every action also. Like that every, everything, every action that happens, every perspective, every like... Everything. Thought, every, like yes. Everything. Yes. Not everything is Hashem revealed. Someone like murdering in cold blood isn't a revelation of Hashem, but you can't say Hashem's not somewhere uh, inside this experience, okay? The idea of God's unity, and this is really important idea, really, really, really important, is that... Hashem is all there is. It's a really mind-blowing concept. Hashem's all there is. So it, when we say Hashem Echad, Hashem is one, we don't mean Hashem is one God instead of two gods. We mean Hashem is the one true existence of all existence. It's a ridiculous concept. Meaning that we're all part of one existence. There's really only one true existence in existence. You see how many times I can say existence? Yeah? And we are all part of that true existence. That's mind-blowing. Hashem is not something somewhere. Hashem is something that flows through everything. Meaning, to get more existency, that existence essentially relies on Hashem. I always say Hashem doesn't exist, which obviously is bad, especially for the film. But no, Hashem does exist. Hashem innovates existence, though. Really, Hashem, Hashem brings forth existence. That's what's unique about Hashem. Hashem isn't in existence like we're all existence. In existence, Hashem brings existence into existence. Okay, enough of the existence. Any questions so far? So therefore what? Therefore, this is what we call the true reality. Hashem is one. Now, in life, we don't experience this reality. What would happen if we experienced this reality? We all go, ah! 
Right? It'd be too much. It'd be too much. So Hashem creates a concealment for us that we don't see this reality. We see a world where you can hardly see God. A world of diversity, a world of multiplicity, a world of, of, um, of darkness in many ways, a world of godlessness in many ways. Now, on Har Sinai, the veil was lifted. The Jewish people saw the truth of existence. And they actually did say, ah! literally, it says, I'll call Dibor, Dibor, Parchanish Masan. Every time Hashem spoke, their souls flew out of their bodies. What's that mean, their souls flew out of their bodies? They couldn't maintain this awareness as a normal person. They couldn't be Ariel Stern. They're like, hey, I'm a normal guy. I like, uh, I like cereal and I love football and I, I like music and I skateboard. I'm, not that he does all those things. But I'm saying, he, you couldn't be also a normal dude and experience that reality. They, they, are, they were mutually exclusive. And so therefore, the Jewish people couldn't handle it. So eventually they had to calm down. The Torah had to be given through Moshe, which would be less intense for them. But nevertheless, the Jewish people accepted what happened on our Sinai because it was so powerful. How could you say no to that? They saw the truth of existence. They weren't going to be like, no, it's not for us. They said, yes, we're in. We want it. But it was, a, it was coerced. So what we're saying here is they were coerced by the experience, by the truth, by the power. They weren't coerced, you know, by, not literally a barrel over their head. The, or, the, or the mountain hanging over their head like a barrel, but rather it was the, on a deeper level, it was the pressure of the power of the moment, of the truth of the moment, which why they accepted it, okay? So I want to just take you guys to the first temple. In fact, I forgot that I was going to say this. I want to take you to the first temple. We're in Jerusalem. Oh, this is awesome. Ishtach is People sat under their, their, their trees and their vineyards, and the Jewish people at a time, a certain time, had total peace. They saw the revelation of Hashem. In the, in the first temple, there was many miracles that occurred. Unfortunately, things start uh, uh, deteriorating, and eventually the Jewish people are exiled. They're in exile for how many years in Persia? 70 years. This is, now, everybody that's... The Purim story happens at the very end of the 70 years, period, okay? Anybody who's there either saw the holy temple... Or their parents or grandparents saw the Holy Temple. So they are, they're close to that time where Hashem was so with the Jewish people. Okay, They're in exile, not in their homeland. And they're broken people. They're broken. And all of a sudden, Ahasuerus comes along and says, Hey, now he's the leader of the modern world. He says, Hey, want to come to my party? Want to come to my celebration? And all the Jewish people say, Oh my God. We are finally... Like, life is getting normal for us again. We're finally, uh, we can, it's, it, they're looking for some sense of normalcy and they, and they took it. It's a whole different conversation that we had a few weeks ago, I don't want to have now, about why the Purim story happened and how we got cut off from divine protection because we trusted too much in uh, Ahasuerus and, and, that, and, and, that, and the world, so to say. But forget that for a moment. The Jewish people don't see Hashem. They haven't seen Hashem in quite a while. The Jewish people finally end up at the hands of Haman Arasha, and he issues a decree the Jewish people should be killed in one day. Okay? Are you feeling Hashem here? You got any Hashem leanness here? I'm not feeling Hashem. I'm saying, we know if we look back, thank God, Baruch Hashem, you know, in hindsight. But there, are you feeling Hashem? No. Let's keep going. A decree is placed on the Jews, and they live with this decree for 11 months. 
You know what that's like? That is a horrible 11 months. That is not a fun 11 months. You get up this morning, you're like, oh my God, my internet's not working. Everything's tough. Could you imagine getting up this morning? Oh my God, in 10 months, in 10 days, in 20 hours or whatever, we will be destroyed by Haman and his very considerable resources. No Hashem. No revelation. And even after the whole miracle occurs, which is that finally Queen Esther has the ability to ask the king for salvation, he can't even take away the decree. He only can issue another decree that we can then fight against our enemies. This is not a very happy story at face value. At the end, the Jewish people are incredibly happy because we, we, we are saved and we do experience that, that beauty. But at the end of the day, this isn't a great revelation of Hashem. I want to go back to, before the miracle, I want to go back to the crushing. The Jewish people are here. We bought into the Achishverish model. It totally backfired. And we're living with this, this destiny for death. It is in this time, this struggle, that the Jewish people actually receive the Torah. Why? Why? How come? Because at this time, for them to stay Jewish... For them to learn Torah in the streets, which they did. For them to be proud Jews, which they did. For them not to abandon their faith, which they didn't. What did it take? It took a Judaism that came from? Them. them. Not one that came from a revelation of God where you say, Oh my God, it's so true, I gotta do it. No. They said, I'll take it. I'll take the package. And if this is part of the package, then I'll take it too. You gotta hear this. This is rich. If, if struggle is part of the package, I'll take it as well. This is why the Gemara says we finally accepted the Torah in the time of Purim. Because for the thousand years between Harsinai and Purim, we weren't ever challenged this way. That we were expecting in one day to be totally wiped out and we still held on to our faith. This proves exactly who we really are. Of course, we originally accepted it for a beautiful reason because we've sensed its truth, but it wasn't yet us. Specifically, in this darkness, it came forth a Judaism from us. Take an analogy, a perfect analogy. Um, 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 ah, a guy and a girl, okay? Right? I have to always go, go back to relationships. Who's the underdog here? The guy. The guy meets the girl. The girl knows on a deep level that she loves him, but she's not really, like, it doesn't really, it hasn't become hers. She knows, yes, we should get married, yes, we should date, whatever it is. And they begin a relationship. Only, let's say, a year into it, all of a sudden they're struggling financially horribly, and everything's hard, and she, and she says, wow, being in a relationship with this guy means it's not always going to be easy, but you know what, I really do love him. I really want this relationship. That's when they got married. I don't care if they got married a year ago. No, they didn't. They got married right then. When she actually accepted because she wants it. Because she, 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 she was willing to accept all of it. You follow? Fine. Um, okay. Any questions so far? We're going to take this a few steps deeper. Questions about this. So that's why Purim was this time we actually accepted the Torah because that's when we were actually crushed. That's when it was actually hard. And an analogy I'm going to use later is the idea of the crushing of an olive. When does the oil come out of the olive? When it's crushed. So when, when things weren't hard for us, when we just, okay, we had a revelation of God, we were in the base of Mikdash, yada, 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 fine. 
But when our very existence was threatened, that's when we were ready to accept the Torah. That's when we said, fine, we want it, and we want it no matter what it takes. If it means I'm going to die to do it, I'll, so if I have to, I will. That's what, that's what Esther said. Kashi avarati avarati. If I'm going to perish, I'll perish. If that's what that being a Jew means, then I'll do it. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And that's when it became real for us. This is also why there's some crazy nuances in the Purim story. Nuance number one is that the Purim, the, the Megillus Esther, is the only book of all Tanakh where someone had to actually like beg for it to get included in Tanakh. They didn't, rabbis weren't so sure they wanted to include it, and Esther had to demand it that it would be included. You don't have that with any other prophets or anything like this. That there had to be a real like, a real push, counterintuitive push for it to get included. Number one. Esther and Malka, yeah. Number two, the name for the holiday is the name of the problem, not the name of the blessing. What's the name of the holiday? Purim. What's the poor? The poor was the lottery that he spun for our death. And he picked it, and even though there's a lot of deep interpretations why Purim is a cool name for it, it's like saying, I can't, it's like saying, celebrating a day where someone was, was almost killed, calling it the knife. Doesn't make sense. Purim was the vehicle by which he's picked the day to wipe out the Jewish people. It's not a good name for the holiday. It should be victory or light or homantashin. Why call it Purim? Number two. Number three, and everybody knows this, but it's important in this context, is that there's nowhere in the Megillah the name of God. The Megillah itself isn't a, a blow-away, you see Hashem story. It is, obviously, when you see it on a deeper level. But at face value, this was not about Hashem. This was about the Jewish people. It wasn't about Hashem swooping down and splitting the sea. This was about the Jews within nature having faith, pushing themselves, fasting, praying, studying, not giving up, and, and things working out for them because of Hashem, obviously, but not in that kind of revealed way. And number four, and this, is, this brings it all together in a very sweet, sweet, sweet package. That's why it says that Megillah's Esther will never be bottle. It's the one book of all Tanakh that will last forever. This is what we were talking about. I have a video, by the way. I'll show you. Anyways, you saw it? Oh, I'm sorry. I love it so much. So, yes, yeah, so what is it? So, um, it's my, I'm so proud of it. So, what is it? So, what does it mean? And it says that the holiday of Purim won't be bottled, won't be, won't be nullified when Mashiach comes, and that the Megillah's Esther is the one book of Tanakh that will, that will stand forever. How come? Obviously, Torah is different, but of Nach. That will stand forever. How come? So listen. So it says that, it, that, it says that the other ones will be... Uh, okay, let's talk about the other uh, books and then the other holidays. The other books and other holidays, I guess we could package it in one explanation, will be batel insignificant. What's it mean, insignificant? When you, when Mashiach comes, it's as if you'll be a prophet. That's the level we'll be living on. When you are a prophet, you're not going to be so impressed by what Yeshayahu said. We're going to want to hear what Nathan Gelman says. Right? I want to hear it. Yeah? That's what's, that's what's going to happen. When we are all on the level of prophecy, it's not going to be so impressive that there was a prophet. Of course there was a prophet. We're all prophets now. Please God, speedily in our days. Amen. Furthermore, is that the, all the holidays, which are talking about what? What are all the holidays talking about? Revelation of God. Pesach, revelation of God. Hanukkah, revelation of God. Purim is the only one that's not talking. How, how impressive will revelation of God be when God's revealed? If God's revealed everywhere, so how impressive is it going to be? And guess what, kids? God was revealed on Pesach. Kids, the kids of the future are going to be like, uh, so, what's the big deal? 
It's like saying, there's going to be a cell phone. Like, we all have cell phones. Imagine. Fine. So why is Purim going to stand out in Megillah's Esther? Because it's from within the people. It's from, the celebration is not God's miracles as much as about our, our strength, our dedication, our commitment, our true acceptance. That's why it's going to stand forever. That's why Purim will always be unique and never be but, he'll never be insignificant. That's why Megillah's Esther will always stand out. Okay, so that's why Hashem's name's not mentioned. That's why she had to demand that it be included. That's why the name for the holiday is Purim, which is speaking about the, the darkness more than the light. Because this is a holiday that comes from the very essence of the Jewish people, the very guts and hearts and souls of the Jewish people, which is actually, I don't want to go here, but I'm going to, an even a higher level of, of Hashem. Meaning that this was Hashem, but it was even a deeper level of Hashem than Pesach because it came through our kishkas. The Jewish kishkas are the highest level. Now, we're going to take this, um, we're going to take this one step further that's going to totally leave Purim and talk about us here today. Okay, so this mechanism that the olive is crushed, the oil comes out. This presents a very deep philosophical conundrum for us because it means the Jewish people are, we are on our best behavior when we're being persecuted. And that's not something I want to invest. I don't want to buy into that for the long haul. Meaning, look at, look at us here today. Jewish people for thousands of years have been fighting against enemy after enemy after enemy and thank God we've been strong and our faith has thrived in many ways and the Jewish people have, have, have blossomed beautifully throughout generations even in the worst of times. We get to America and to the modern world, thank God. No one's bothering us. No one's bothering us. What's happening now? In many ways our faith is deteriorating. We have here the internet and the, the modern era and the exposure to secularism in ways we never had before. And as someone who's dealing a tremendous amount with people, young Jews, it's hard. It's, I guarantee that if God forbid, I don't want to know about it, but if, if somehow, I don't even want to say it, it that, it, that it, if, that when the Jewish people are crushed, they produce. When we're not crushed, I myself know. Thank God I'm not crushed. So... So I'm not getting out of bed early in the morning to run to Minyan because I'm afraid that, that, that I have to ask God for help because someone's trying to kill me, God forbid. I'm, so the only reason why I go to Minyan is because I want to be a good Jew and that's a hard, that's a hard thrust. Furthermore, is that assimilation and intermarriage is at an all-time high. And I, I said this in a very painful conversation with one of my constituents who was asking me for my advice on, on his desire to intermarry. And I said, why, we don't want to give... All the people that tried to destroy the Jewish people, we don't want to give them what they wanted. It's like, God forbid, intermarrying means that in a few generations your kids won't be connected anymore. We're get, all of a sudden, no one's trying to kill us and we're killing ourselves. People-wise, nationhood, nation-wise. That's what intermarriage does, is that over time, over time, over time, there's, the, the, there's no more Jewish identity. So, and I'll tell you a story. The story is of a woman named Marina who lives here in the village, a very good friend of ours. Um, and she always tells me herself, that, um, that when she was in Russia, she was like secretly organizing Tanya classes in her house under the, uh, the, the eyes of those that wanted to kill her for doing it. And she was, she, she was willing to sacrifice everything to keep Judaism alive in Russia when it was prohibited. She came to America. She told me now it's much harder because now there's no one fighting her. So now she has much less push to be hardcore. 
So the question is, based on this narrative, how do we get the... the or, and the answer is not, let's be persecuted. That's a really exile way of thinking about life. We don't, we're very thankful, and our grandparents are looking at us very thankful. Our great-grandparents that, that with tears in their eyes and blood on their, their shirts thought about us today and are thankful that we're sitting here nice in a nice office with food on the table, Baruch Hashem, with very nice pens. We're very thankful, right? Baruch Hashem. The question is, how do we get the oil out without the crushing? This is the question. I want to close it off. It's a very tough question. This is, this is the question of our time. How do we bring forth the oil without the crushing? Okay, so a couple ideas. Um, number one is that we have to remember we're not there yet. Okay, this is very, everything I'm going to say right now is very important. Number one. We can't feel we've made it. This is not Mashiach. Just because we're here in the beautiful Chaban house and we have food and on Purim we have so many different choices of wines and food, steaks and, and, and restaurants and clothing. And this, I mean, there's so much abundance. Thank God we're not here yet. We're not here yet. Here, we're not here yet in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel. We're also not here. Just because we are there and Jews are occupying the land, there's so much darkness there as well. Thank God. Baruch Hashem, we're there, but it's, it's, it's heavy. This is, we, we, are, we are not there yet. You cannot say this is Mashiach. You can't look around and say, that's it. Redemption has come. There's no darkness in the world. God forbid. What, if we remember that we're in process, maybe we're getting there. We're beginning to be there. We're in a process. So that, that consciousness ourselves does, helps us from, that consciousness allows us to have a self-imposed crushing. Okay, so that's answer number one. A self-imposed crushing by crushing by realization that we're not there yet. That just because I'm comfortable here and I can, I can experience Judaism beautifully, as a people, we're not there yet, number one. Number two, think of others that can't go daven in a minion. There are people. There are people that there's few, thank God, few and far between. There are people that can't observe Judaism, can't feel comfortable wearing a yarmulke in this country, in this place. So number two is we have to remember not just... Um, existentially, philosophically, that we're not there yet, but that, that there are places where there is real darkness, number two. Number three, we have to also think of our own spiritual darkness. We all know, everyone knows here, that we all have pain in our hearts. We all have sadness. We all have distance from God. We all feel, we all feel separation. We have to realize that. We have to realize that this, is, that again, we're not there yet. This isn't, this isn't we are, in the, 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 there's still reason to feel crushed. Number four is that we have to think about how awesome a sheikh will be. When a sheikh will be revealed in the whole world, that's incredible. When we think about that, the joy, no more death, no more dying, no, no more fights, only peace. I mean, it's incredible. No jealousy. I mean, what? If we can ponder how beautiful that's going to be, then we realize that we, that we should feel crushed. Just having a 7-Eleven downstairs with kosher slurpees is not, does not compare to the rebuilding of the base of Middash. I'm sorry. Does not compare that some Jew or, or good person who's suffering and, 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 and sick and in pain and darkness, that they shouldn't have to have that pain. How can we be satisfied just because we have Slurpees? Or not just Slurpees, let's be more, more robust. Just because I, we have a, a base medrash downstairs and we can dive and we can learn, still... Still, Hashem is not fully revealed. People are still suffering physically. People are still suffering spiritually, each one of us. And the world is still in pain. So the idea of self-imposed darkness is, it's a perception shift. 
It requires meditation and contemplation. But we, the way that our olives still should give off oil without us having to be crushed by exterior forces is by understanding the principles I've just mentioned, understanding where we're going, understanding where we are, understanding that besides where we are, where other people are, understanding exactly where we really are in our hearts and realizing we're not there yet. Not there yet. And therefore, there's still, the, but there's still, we still have more oil to squeeze out. It's still important to feel a sense of, oh my God, it's so important being a Jew alive today. I have such a responsibility on my shoulders. That's how the oil comes out. We have to realize that, that, that every generation was leading up to us. The rabbi always said we're um, midgets on the shoulders of giants. We, yeah, of course I'm not as great as the people before me. But, but all of them waited for one moment, which is for us to be here in this room. That this is what they all waited for, is for this generation, with all the resources and capacity we have, to finally, like, go for it. And we kind of got to it. We're like, oh, okay, now we're done. And that's not Okay. We, gotta, we have to be more incredible than our ancestors. We have to be more on fire than those that came before us. We have to be more... We, obviously, the fact that, I can, that, that we have access to resources our ancestors haven't had access to doesn't mean we should do less than them. We should do more than them. Imagine if you gave Esther and Malka the resources we have, what she would do with it. Mordechai, who was willing to die before he bowed to, uh, to Haman, a person with that kind of fortitude. Imagine if they had what each one of us has. They'd change the world transform the world. So we have to think about that as a way of keeping our oil flowing. Thank God we will not be crushed by anybody else. May we never be again.